The Hearing, a legal podcast from Thomson Reuters. I think for a few years, I suffered from what's now called imposter syndrome, thinking that I'd lucked into it, which is true, and thinking I wasn't good enough, which I think wasn't true, but also a sense I felt that I didn't really belong. I came to a realisation, this was probably when I was a couple of years qualified, that that was just self-centred nonsense, that I was surrounded by people with a similar background to me, there was nothing particularly exceptional about my ordinariness, and I should just shut up and get on with it. Hello and welcome to The Hearing. Some months ago, I read an article in the Guardian newspaper about my guest today, Dan Needham. He's a former tax lawyer who reached the top of his profession and then suddenly changed everything. And I was completely charmed and wanted to interview him on the hearing first to hear more about the twists and turns that led him to being the head of tax at Clifford Chance and then to leave. But also to take the opportunity to ask an expert all the questions I've ever had about tax and the best ways to use it. The Hearing. My name is Dan Needle. I was a tax lawyer for many years, eventually head of tax at Clifford Chance in London. I retired from that role in May 2022. I now run Tax Policy Associates, a micro think tank that works on issues of tax and legal policy. So you must have been exceptionally good as a lawyer in order to have become the head of tax at Clifford Chance. What made you choose tax as a specialism in the first place? And how did you find that work? I I was a good lawyer. Like most lawyers, I was good at some things, less good at other things. The secret is to do the stuff you're good at and not do the stuff you're not good at. So I tried to do that. Why did I become a tax lawyer? My career is a model of falling into things by accident and probably not deserving it and achieving things through luck. So... I had no idea what I was doing. This was in the pre-internet age. If you wanted to find about law firms, you had to get some piece of paper, some glossy brochure describing the law firm. There was no other way. And I wasn't very good at this, and I didn't really understand anything. And I wanted to be a crusading criminal barrister at first. Then I realised I just didn't have the stomach for it. It's a vital job, and it's amazing that people do it, but I couldn't do it. Mm. Then I thought, aha, I've got a degree in physics. I know, I'll be, a, I'll be an IP litigator. That sounds fun, said he, having no idea what that meant. Um, <laughs> I, I'm now going to research the, the best IP litigation firms and apply to them. So I did some incredibly bad research and decided the best IP litigation firms were Bird and Bird, which is actually pretty good, and Clifford Chance, which is not, not, not really right, I think. I applied to both of them. Bird and Bird, I think I heard back from them years later, after I'd actually started at Clifford Chance, but (laughs) not sure what happened there. Clifford Chance saw my crappy application and sensibly binned it. I then won a debating competition at, was it King's College London? I think it was, sponsored by Clifford Chance, who afterwards sat next to the then senior partner of Clifford Chance, a guy called Keith Clark, lovely man. And I discovered more than a decade later that after that, he then called graduate recruitment and told them to take my CV out of the waste paper basket and put it in the interview pile. So complete luck. Wow. Well, not entirely luck. You you won the competition. Uh, 
yes. <laughs> Your question was why tax? So that was equally poorly thought through. I'd got no idea I was interested in tax. If someone had suggested to me I'd be a tax lawyer, I probably would have been confused, maybe even insulted. I did a seat in banking. My supervisor was a chap called, fairly new partner called Rob Lee, who later became head of finance. Very successful lawyer, was very kind and patient with me. Brilliant experience. And he suggested I might enjoy a seat in tax. I have no idea why I listened to him, but for some reason I did. I can't remember why. Did a seat in tax. Really enjoyed it. And when it came to qualify, I thought, that's probably for me. And that's how I did it. And I think for a few years, I suffered from what's now called imposter syndrome, of thinking that I'd lucked into it, which is true, and thinking I wasn't good enough, which I think wasn't true. But also a sense I felt that I didn't really belong, that I didn't know anyone. No one in my family had worked in the city before, much less a firm like Clifford Chance. I thought I didn't belong. And I came to a realisation, this was probably when I was a couple of years qualified, that that was just self-centred nonsense, that I was surrounded by people with a similar background to me. There was nothing particularly exceptional about my ordinariness, and I should just shut up and get on with it. And at that point, I think the imposter syndrome started to go away, although I think all good lawyers have an element of that in their mind. But that's the very condensed version of how I became a tax lawyer. Well, that's very interesting. And I think you're right when you say all lawyers have that bit of imposter syndrome, because I think that all lawyers are secretly terrified sitting at their desks that they have missed a critical risk that a better lawyer would have spotted. Yes, but of course, it's the, the fact they're thinking that which mm. makes them the better lawyer. Exactly. The lawyers who don't <laughs> think that and just step ahead, confident in their rectitude, perhaps in an area they know nothing about, they're the dangerous ones. I remember somebody saying that the best lawyers are insecure type A overachievers because it's their very insecurity which makes them, as you say, good lawyers. Um, so um, you found tax and it became a surprisingly your natural home. How did you find the work when you had qualified and you had left your imposter syndrome behind? How did you find the work of being a tax lawyer? And I must confess here that I was not a tax lawyer. Um, Although, funnily enough, I did train at Bird and Bird um, because I, too, erroneously thought that I wanted to be an intellectual property litigator when what I really wanted to be was a commercial lawyer, commercial contracts lawyer. Um, and so, but I'm, so tax was always a real um, area of something that I had never knew anything about and have continued blissfully to never know anything about. So how is the work of being a tax lawyer? What is it like? Big question. And... In a sense, there isn't an answer because it varies hugely between different firms, between mm. different bits of different firms, different people in the different bits, and then it varies day to day. But I think there's a perception, which was probably accurate once upon a time, that tax lawyers spend their time avoiding tax, dreaming up tax avoidance schemes. Since when I say I didn't do that, it's not because of any particular special ethics I hold. It's because really ever since I qualified, tax avoidance schemes have been given short shrift by the courts. So if you spend mm. your time doing that, you're spending your time being shockingly negligent. That's what we don't do, which isn't an answer to your question. What, what do we do? So <laughs> it's a big mixture of things. Sometimes it's a client is doing a thing and wants to know what's the tax result of that thing. 
Now, clients generally are happy to pay tax on their profits, but they don't like paying tax on random stuff that isn't their profit, but is a result of the complexity of the tax system. Mm. So a lot of time is getting the client the result which realistically you'd think they'd get, but it's very complicated. And sometimes that's pretty easy. The client just needs reassurance. Sometimes the rules are extremely complex and being in the predictable zone is difficult and it takes a lot of takes a lot of work that's part of what you do um part of what you do is structuring transactions sort of the more active side of that so think of all the many ways that you could engineer a complicated cross-border merger or restructuring or financing an almost infinite number of ways that you could do it you're doing it in half a dozen different countries each country has its own tax laws regulatory rules pension rules employment rules corporate rules blah 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 um each variant of the structure is going to have a different impact on all of those rules. There will not be a structure which gives you the best possible result out of all of those parameters. Mm. The client will have a risk appetite, which these days is normally pretty low, but you generally can't avoid taking some legal risk. You're not going to get your Italian lawyer to say, yeah, yeah, the Italian tax on this is the answer is definitely that. It's never going to happen. So you've, you're doing this multidimensional Rubik's Cube and trying to find an answer which results in an acceptable level of risk that the client's happy with. So that tax structuring is quite a fun part of being a tax lawyer. That sounds, cool. that sounds really fun. That's more fun than I was expecting. You're, you're the spider at the centre of a big cross-border transaction. So th- that's fun. Um, risk is another huge thing. You're a company, a private equity firm, whatever, you're taking over a widget manufacturer in Scunthorpe. You want to make sure that there are no tax nasties in that business that are going to come back and bite you, whether it be something boring, like they've just been doing their PAYE wrong, something more interesting, like they um, did an acquisition themselves and they got the tax wrong a few years ago. Maybe they've got some complex dispute with HMRC. Maybe they've bought a bunch of dodgy tax avoidance schemes. You're going to want to understand those risks. Most tax lawyers don't do the more compliancey side of that, checking tax returns, looking at PAYE, but the um, the larger, more structural risks, disputes, definitely want the tax lawyer. What else do tax lawyers do? Disputes, we do disputes. Someone is in a dispute with HMRC. Possibly it is over a transaction that was avoidance-flavoured. Usually that would be because our poor client bought company and missed that there was trouble there. Um, very few of our clients would ever have done something like that deliberately. Sometimes it would be, well, that most of the time, it would just be a pure technical dispute. Maybe the client assembled that transactional Rubik's Cube and despite thinking it was low risk, actually the tax authority doesn't like it. Perhaps it's that the client missed some obscure technical point and HMLC have now spotted it and are at it. Lots of potential for tax disputes. And the nature of tax disputes is that they're pretty complicated and they go on a very long time. So, yeah, there's lots of different things tax lawyers do. And, yeah, it, it can vary. You, 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 could, you could spend time just looking at documents in a big M&A transaction, negotiating the, the allocation of tax risk. In fact, a quite, for quite a lot of tax lawyers in London in the last few years, that's been the majority of their time. It wasn't quite my practice, only occasionally. But for that, that could be quite a big role. Um, that involves quite a lot of negotiation. It's not the typical cliched role of a tax lawyer being locked in an ivory tower. It's the opposite. Sometimes you, you are doing that. Sometimes you're given some difficult problem 
which could be part of a dispute, could be advice, could be M&A, could, could be anything. But either way, there's a difficult problem and you have to work out what the answer is. And then you are looking yourself in an ivory tower for a few days. It really varies. And it, it, it's the variation which, which I liked. Yes, I can see that. I discovered, to my horror, that I'm interested in tax. I'm fascinated <laughs> by economics and politics and law and taxes where they all meet rather unhappily most of the time. Oh, well, that might move me on to my next question very neatly, um, which is that having reached the pinnacle of your career um, in the practising legal sense as head of tax at Clifford Chance, you then left whilst at the top of your game to set up the Tax Policy Associates Think Tank, um, which is an incredibly bold move for which I salute you for your boldness, but I would really like to hear about what made you make that sudden change. Well, I didn't actually. I actually retired to spend time with the family, not in the I'm having an affair sense, or uh, I've been found as part of some enormous scandal, but I, <laughs> I, I had what I think is a fairly boring, cliched realisation during lockdown that my priorities were not what I thought they were. I was in the absurdly privileged position that I realised I didn't have to work anymore. And whilst I loved my job, but I miss it. I, I, I love my job, but if I'm doing it because I love it and not because I need to do it, it's not a job at all, it's a hobby. And being head of tax at a city firm is a really strange hobby and a rather self-indulgent <laughs> and selfish one. Once I put it like that, there wasn't really much of a decision to make. That's a very interesting way to think about it. Very interesting indeed. I've retired to spend more time with my family, but many lawyers find it hard to retire because they love it. They love the law. They love doing things. They love solving problems. And some of them cling on and don't retire well past the point that they should, not for financial reasons, but pure ego reasons. And others retire and do other stuff. And some retire and don't do other stuff and are then unhappy as a result. And I was very much not immune to that. And for personal, intellectual, ego reasons, I needed to keep doing legal stuff. So the question was, what? I'd always been, well, always is too much for, for probably the last 10 years or so, I'd been increasingly involved in tax policy matters, frustrated with the way that a lot of the time tax policy was treated in the media, and a lot of that's down to the profession not engaging as much as it should. And here was an opportunity for me to use the knowledge I had, probably more importantly, the contacts that I had, and maybe try and make a small difference to the public debate on tax. So I thought, I'm retiring to spend more time with my family, but I will spend a few hours a day doing this thing. Your hobby. I grow tomatoes. That's a hobby. I'm not. I'm, I don't know if this is a. I don't know if this is a hobby. I, I, I'm not sure w w what it is. It's not a. It's not a full time job. It's a part time job that I happen to be unpaid for. The hearing. On the outside, you're a lawyer, calm and cool, but inside, there's a passion to perform, a drive to be absolutely on your game. You prepare hour after hour, day after day, in the pursuit of excellence, relying on superior resources, serious preparation, and total confidence. That's the advantage we give you. Be your best with Thomson Reuters Practical Law. I'm Kim Vanell. Join me every morning for a roundup of what's happening at home and around the world. From the front line in Ukraine. Extraordinary how these people adjust and uh, even laugh when you take cover. 
to the heart of U.S. politics. When Trump said that he expected to be arrested, it seems like he was trying to get ahead of the story. We bring you everything you need to know in 10 minutes. For your essential daily briefing, follow Reuters World News wherever you get your podcasts. So let's talk about what the Tax Policy Associates do. Um, what are some of the biggest pieces of work that you've done? What's been the outcome of them? It's been going for a relatively short time, but as far as I can see from your website, you've already had some amazing projects and and some quite influential ones as well. It's been, I mean, it started when I retired, so in May 22, and it started as I meant it to with fairly nerdy policy write-ups on things like HMRC penalties and offshore tax evasion and I knew I was making some impact with policymakers, which is what I, what I wanted to do. Then, really by accident, I found myself in a bit of a contretemps with then-Chancellor of the Exchequer, Nadim Sahawi, where I thought he'd avoided about three million or so of tax, and he denied it, and he threatened to sue me. And then it turned out in January 2023 that... I'd been right. He had indeed failed to pay tax that was due and he'd ended up having to pay it to HMRC plus penalties and he was sacked. So that then gave me a level of public profile that I hadn't expected beyond the point of profile that I really need or want. And so now it means the Tax Policy Association is in a slightly different place that I I get more attention from non-specialists which is a good thing if I'm trying to make change in a particular area, but it does mean I need to be careful. No, I can understand that. I, I certainly have the potential to get it wrong and get someone into trouble when they don't deserve it, which I need to watch extremely carefully. Yes. No, I can imagine that. But, you know, as a as a insecure type A overachiever, one hopes that you will be constantly checking, as, you know, everybody does. Um, so I wanted to um, talk more about how tax operates in the economy. I, as I mentioned, I'm a commercial contracts lawyer. Tax law feels very much, even after your beautiful explanation, still feels like quite a mystical art to me. But, but it is clearly an absolutely critical lever in the economy. It's used by all people on all sides of the political spectrum to tilt things in the way that they want their politics and their ideology to go. So I'm curious, um, politics aside, what do you think is the best use of tax and why? use of tax as a lever it's a lever to achieve things isn't it that's a difficult question i mean why why do we tax at all well on the most obvious level we tax to raise funding for government spending and then it's just a question of what is the best way to tax to achieve that in a way which is fair the word of fair of course meaning different things depending on who you talk to (laughs) which is efficient, which doesn't damage economic growth more than it needs to, which doesn't um, hurt people, particularly people on lower incomes, more than it needs to. So it's a difficult balancing exercise, one which is always going to leave some people unhappy. Um, another important role of tax is, and I think this is perhaps where you're getting it, where you're trying to achieve a particular result and you use tax to do that. The classic way to do that is when you identify an externality which is not being correctly priced by the market. For example, um, if we think people are creating too much rubbish and using up landfill sites and 
that creates a social cost which people are not recognising. Well, then you could have a tax, which we do, landfill tax, which tries to put a price on the activity which reflects its wider costs. So though those taxes can be pretty effective. What tends to be less effective are where we try to achieve something else through tax. For example, we try to encourage people to, um, to, to research in particular ways, to have particular types of R&D expenditure in their businesses. And so we create special rules which give you a favourable tax result if you do this thing. That is often problematic because you're having to draw a bright line for when you qualify and when you don't. In a complex world, policing that line is hard, creates uncertainty and complexity for business, creates avoidance opportunities for people to take other stuff and drag it over the line, even creates opportunities for tax evasion. And the R&D tax credit rules have done all of those things. I don't think they have been a success at all. So I think it's pretty dangerous to try and use the tax system to achieve something achieve a non-tax aim unless you're really careful. Often there are better ways to do that which don't involve tax. That's really interesting and really helpful actually to kind of disambiguate those two different ways of looking at tax if you're trying to encourage a behaviour as you say in the R&D space versus there's a social cost which is going unpaid. I'm going to go off a little off-piste if that's okay and ask you about um carbon tax credits or how we might deal with climate change because obviously there is a um, a a social cost to the warming of the environment but we're not seeing tax regimes well perhaps we are perhaps you can tell me i'm wrong that are really kind of tackling that head on i presume that's for lots of political different reasons but i was wondering if you had any ideas around that so i think most tax policy people and tax economists would say this is a classic case where tax does have a role of pricing in an externality and we can design a tax to do that. The Pigouvian taxes that they're, they're often called. Um, the particular tax you'd introduce is a carbon tax. Conceptually it's simple. You'd say that anything that you do which involves the emission of carbon into the atmosphere, there's a tax on that that reflects the, the, the ultimate economic cost of your emissions. When you create a carbon tax, you make it border adjusted in the lingo. What that means is that we, the UK, are imposing a tax on stuff which is done in the UK. So, for example, if a if I build a widget and it creates a kilo of carbon, then I should be paying carbon tax on that kilo of carbon. If someone in China sells widgets into the UK, which created a kilo of carbon, well, they should pay carbon tax on that kilo of carbon. On the other hand, if I, in the UK, export widgets, widgets to China, there shouldn't be carbon tax, because it's only stuff in the UK which we're taxing. By doing that, we make sure that we're not putting UK businesses at a competitive disadvantage, and we're not creating a massive loophole for um, non-UK businesses. So it's a border-adjusted carbon tax. It's extremely elegant. No one in the world has done it. Why? One reason is that how you work out the carbon price for every single product is hard. I think a bigger reason is the politics, that on the face of it, it would be a tough tax imposing lots of costs all over the place. And many of the people you're putting costs on are quite politically influential people. So difficult. Um, some of those people would be people who couldn't perhaps afford to pay it. So any carbon tax 
has to be introduced at the same time as taking sums you're collected and then redistributing them so that in particular people on low incomes don't end up badly losing out. Sometimes it's called a carbon dividend. So you need to combine a carbon tax with a carbon dividend. But sadly, I don't think there's any major political party in the world that's pursuing this. Europe, of course, has its own emissions trading scheme and carbon mm. credits, which are very imperfect by comparison because they don't apply to everything. They have quotas which enable a certain degree of gaming of the system. A carbon tax would be a wonderful step, but it seems at the moment unlikely it's going to happen. Very interesting. Um, I'm going to move on to my last question now. Um, which I'm actually feeling quite sorrowful about because I've thoroughly enjoyed this dipping my toe into the world of tax um, and you've made it sound much more exciting than I had thought it was. And maybe I missed my calling. Um, but I would like to know what is the one thing that you wish all of the rest of us lawyers who are not tax lawyers, what do you wish that we knew about what you do to make your lives easier when we are pulling together M&A deals and selling companies and buying houses on behalf of our clients? Oh, that, the really boring answer there is just involve, involve the tax lawyers at, at, at an early stage. Many, many times I get a call at four o'clock on a Friday afternoon <laughs> saying, we're, we're, we're about to sign this massive deal in Kazakhstan, um, which has no connection with the UK apart from the use of English law. We need to give, say, a stamp duty opinion. That's going to be fine, isn't it? Here's the 20,000 pages of documentation. Please say it's fine. And no good tax lawyer hears that and says, oh, yes, yes, absolutely, it's fine. No, um, some poor sucker, which won't really be me, has to read the 20,000 pages. And most of the time it is fine, and very occasionally it isn't. So, you know, best case, you're making my life unpleasant. You're having a last-minute hold-up to a big deal. Worst case, it's more than a mere hold-up. So, um, yeah, the really boring boring plea on behalf of tax people everywhere is involve the tax people early fantastic well to be to be honest i feel like um we lawyers should probably know that because the plea that i normally give to business people that i used to work with is please don't involve me in the contract at the last stage and tell me to rubber stamp it please please give it to me four weeks ago when you were first sent it and not the night before you're due to sign it um, yes so we exactly. really ought to know better because it's all happens to all of us at some point i'm sure the hearing a huge thank you to dan for speaking with me and lifting some of my ignorance about tax this is an area which touches everyone's life, but remains shrouded in mystery and misinformation, and I greatly enjoyed putting my questions to an expert. If you enjoyed this episode, then please do like and subscribe so you don't miss future episodes, or send us an email at thehearing at thompsonreuters.com. I've been Becky Anderson, and thank you for listening. The Hearing, a legal podcast from Thomson Reuters. To find out more, go to tr.com forward slash the hearing or subscribe via iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.